Good morning. Well, it's uh, so good to see everyone this morning. <clears throat> My name is Hugh, and I serve on the leadership team here. There's a little bit of echo. Um, <clears throat> we're currently in the midst of our teaching series on the book of Revelation, and I have the privilege this morning to share the message in Jesus' letter to of the seven churches in Asia Minor, and this is the letter to the church at Laodicea. I was originally scheduled to do so two weeks ago, but ran into a little bit of issue with my knee, and so Pastor Billy switched things around to allow me to share this morning. Um, last couple of weeks, Pastor Billy covered chapter four, which uh, the title of that was The Throne of God, chapter five, The Lion and the Lamb. Um, <clears throat> this morning, though, we're going to go back to chapter three, and its verse is uh, 14 to 22. And so as we have done uh, when we taught on the letters to the first six churches, let's read Revelation 1. 9 through 20, to establish the context of the letter, and then we're going to read today's passage uh, in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. <clears throat> Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in, in Jesus, on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of, Christ, of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see his voice, the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I felt at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. <clears throat> I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now let's read our passage for this morning. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold far and garments so that you may, be clothed, you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those who I love I reprove and discipline. So be, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as, also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father and his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says <clears throat> to the churches. Father, and we make that last statement or prayer this morning, Father. Uh, Lord, you're the one that opens blind eyes and, and deaf ears. You're the one that really give us hearing and sight. And so, Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning. Um, and bring about, Lord, the, 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 the understanding that we need, but also the changes that would go along with it, Father. Uh, so we praise you. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in terms of a general outline of the letter, it is laid out really in similar fashion as the other six letters. You know, Christ announces himself, uses names which tie directly to the stern rebuke which he's about to give them. Next, is, there is typically one or more commendations, but in this case, there's none. Instead, he goes directly to a strong rebuke, a rebuke which many think is the harshest of all the rebukes to the seven churches, in which he pictures them as utterly disgusting. The harsh rebuke is followed by an exhortation which reflects his love for them and really a very hopeful promise. And the letter closes with the promise of restored fellowship and sharing in his victory. In his victory. <clears throat> and so these are also going to be the main points of discussion this morning. So <clears throat> the title of the message is The Lord Disciplines Those Whom He Loves So That They May Enjoy Fellowship With Him and Share in his victory. <clears throat> Let me ask you this question. In the past, when you thought of the uh, Laodicea church and Jesus' letter to the church, what kind of thoughts came to your mind? Probably things like, you know, hot, cold, lukewarm, you know, Jesus standing at the door and knocking. But perhaps not things like disgusting wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We would probably not think of a Christian church in that manner, would we? 
Yet that is how Jesus pictured and described his church. Can you imagine sitting in the church service that Sunday morning, or whenever they met, and hearing this letter read, which is aimed directly at you? As they listened to the first five letters read, they may have thought that Jesus made so well of the church at Philadelphia, and so they were so anxious to hear what he had to say about them, because they thought that they were doing fantastic as a church. If your best friend said these kinds of things to you that Jesus said to the church in the first few verses, that would probably be the end of the friendship, wouldn't it? These Laodicean Christians, then as they heard that message, were probably not singing what a friend we have in Jesus on their way home after that message. But hopefully, they came to their senses and realized that he's the one who truly loves them, as he says later in the passage. And his desire is not to turn them away from him, but to cause them to turn toward him in genuine repentance. He's really the best friend they have. As they traveled <clears throat> a little farther along, perhaps, on, you know, on their way home, <clears throat> they remembered what Jesus said at the beginning of the letter. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. This means that he never swerves from the truth, and they, the Laodicean church, can take his word at face value. Also, he's the faithful and true witness, which is in stark contrast to emperors who would claim to be gods and demand the people's worship. Well, the letter has quite a bit of metaphoric language, which is tied directly to the rebuke and exhortations which Jesus gives. These metaphors are associated directly with the history and status of the city and by association the church itself. Today, we may struggle with trying to understand the meaning of some of these metaphors, but the recipients of the letter at that time would readily understand what Jesus is saying to them in a real practical way. <clears throat> but the Spirit would have to open their eyes and ears for them to really get the spiritual message and the implications of what he's saying. That's why at the end he says, let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> so I think it would be fitting for us to talk a little bit about the historical background of the city and the church, which I think will help us better understand some of the statements which Jesus makes in the letter. Laodicea was located in what Asia Minor, what was called Asia Minor back then, now it's modern they're the cities of Palos and Hierapolis. Antiochus II, who was a Greek king and one of several with that name, named the city after his wife, Laodice. <coughs> Laodicea was a very wealthy city for several reasons. It was a major trade route, city with abundance of merchants, and it was a major banking center. 
It was a major export market for black wool. It's a fabric, <coughs> a product which was in very high demand. A well-known medical school was located at the Temple of Asclepius, which offered a special salve to heal common eye problems of the day and an ear ointment for common ear problems. You kind of get the picture a little bit later on. He talks about white garments, um, salve for your eyes. And we'll see, we'll get into why he says that. The city was so wealthy <clears throat> that he was able to rebuild the city using its own resources after an earthquake destroyed it about 35 years before this letter was written. In fact, they chose not to accept any help from Rome at all to rebuild. That's how wealthy they were. Um, one thing the city was lacking was its own water source. So water was brought in via an aqueduct from the nearby city of Arapolis, located a few miles to the north. <clears throat> We're not told who founded this church at Laodicea. Let from text, uh, yet from textual evidence in the New Testament, we can infer that a guy named Epaphras, one of the Apostle Paul's disciples, likely planted that church. We know that Epaphras founded the church at Colos, which was very close, just a handful of miles from Laodicea. Therefore, it seems plausible that he would also be responsible for planting the church there. There's no evidence that Paul ever visited the city but he was certainly very concerned about it. <clears throat> in his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes this in Colossians 2, 1 through 3. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. At the end of the Colossian letter, <clears throat> we find these words again from Paul, Colossians 4, 13 through 16, for I bear witness, I bear him witness, this is Epaphras, that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So implied here is that Paul had also written a letter to the church at Laodicea which was to be passed on to the Colossian church for their edification. Apparently, this letter got lost at some point. Interestingly, in Jesus' letter to the Laodicean church, there's no mention of them facing and enduring intense trials, persecutions, like several of the other churches in Asia Minor. And you kind of have to wonder why. You know, he commends the Ephesian church for their hard work, perseverance, enduring hardships, and not 
growing weary. He commends the church at Smyrna for suffering through persecution and poverty. But in their poverty, he says that they're rich. He commends the church at Pergamum for remaining true to Christ and not renouncing her faith. He commends the church at Thyatira for their love, faith, and perseverance. For Sardis, no commendation. They're dead, although they think they're alive. Philadelphia, he says they keep his word, <clears throat> not denying his name, and endures patiently. But for the church at Laodicea, there's no mention of them serving him faithfully, keeping his word, facing any persecution, enduring trials, nothing like that. So this raises the question, why was this so? One possibility is that in order to protect and preserve their wealth, the Christians compromised their faith and actually subscribed to emperor's claim of being God and worship of him. The emperor, at the, the emperor at the time was Domitian, and it was during his reign when he exiled Patmos, and persecution of Christians really started to pick up. But the main point, and hopefully you'll see as we go through the passage here, the main point of the message is this. The sin of self-sufficiency will surely choke the spiritual life out of us and cause us to be lukewarm Christians. But true fellowship with Christ will restore spiritual vitality. So let's get into it. Uh, point number one, Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Christ <clears throat> here identifies himself using names, and these are actually names, uh, which tie directly to the stern rebuke which he's about to give them. He introduces himself in this manner by striking straight at the heart of the matter which he's addressing in this church. <laughs> All these names speak to his deity and his sovereignty and rule over all creation, including those who would try to exalt themselves as sovereign. First, he is the Amen. The name Amen indicates that he is God's perfect and final revelation. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in Hebrews 1, the first couple of verses, he says, long ago, at many times, <clears throat> and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe <clears throat> by the word of his power. Second, he's the faithful and true witness. He is the embodiment of truth and he's trustworthy, which make him God's reliable witness. The Laodicean church could take this, his word at face value. And I said this earlier. 
is the faithful and true witness in stark contrast to those who would exalt themselves and make claims of themselves being sovereign. Third, he's the beginning of God's creation. He was before all of God's creation and is sovereign over it. All things were created by him and for him. Paul tells us in Colossians 1. In Revelation 4.11, we find these words. It says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, some translations they may actually say, for your pleasure, maybe it's the song that says that, but they existed and were created. Let's go back to creation a little bit. And, you know, God created Adam and Eve and placed them in in this uh, paradise called the Garden of Eden. In giving them dominion over it, they were to tend it enjoy it, extend civilization throughout the whole earth with offspring who would themselves do the same. But they were never to find their ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction, and sufficiency in created things. Those things, fulfillment, satisfaction, and sufficiency, were to be found in God alone as they walk in fellowship with him and in total dependency upon him for all things. When sin entered the world through the fall, that changed everything. Adam and Eve and their descendants turned to created things to find fulfillment and satisfaction. And ultimately those things became their source of contentment, of joy and not God. Well, this brings us to the Laodicean church. It appears that they were completely compromised in their Christian faith as they turned and looked to created things to find fulfillment, joy, satisfaction. In their case, it was wealth and health as well, and influence from the prosperity of the city. As I mentioned earlier, some historians and Bible scholars think that in order to protect and preserve their wealth, the Christians compromised their faith and actually subscribed to the emperor's claim of being God. This this compromise then would preserve the trade routes and their ability to continue to trade and, and enrich themselves even more. If this was indeed the case, of course, we know that's idolatry, isn't it? They're worshiping false gods. Not just the one who claimed to be sovereign, but the things God created himself. Well, point number two, whatever the reason for the spiritual condition of the church at Laodicea, the result was a very harsh rebuke from Christ which we find then in verses 15 through 17. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot or cold. Would that you were either hot or cold? So because you're lukewarm and neither hot 
nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. God knows everything about them, right? And nothing is hidden from his sight. So Jesus could rightly say, I know your works. <clears throat> he knows what they did. He knows their allegiances and the motivation behind it. He knows their thinking. He knows their self-deceit. He knows their pride and their arrogance. Here Jesus uses a metaphor associated with their water supply when he says, you're neither cold nor hot, but are lukewarm. <clears throat> the, Laodicean, the Laodiceans understood this analogy quite well because their city water, the, the city of drinking water was piped in from an act, by an aqueduct from springs, and these were hot springs in nearby Hierapolis. <laughs> located about six miles to the, to the north. So when it arrived in Laodicea, it was lukewarm, and it did not taste very good. <laughs> so as kind of a side note, though, because um, you may read that and say, well, why is lukewarm water so terrible? Um, <clears throat> it depends on what's in it. <laughs> As a side note then, this disgusting taste of the lukewarm water was likely not simply because it was lukewarm, rather the water from these hot springs originated deep within the Earth's mantle where it was geothermally heated and it rose under pressure up through fractures and falls and emerges hot springs. The hot springs, <coughs> the hot water was highly mineralized which gave, gave it of course, it's therapeutic effect, you know, that's one of the uses. The bad taste of the water, though, was due to it being highly mineralized, not simply that it was, you know, lukewarm. Other, other cities farther away, like Pergamum, had cold water which was refreshing to drink. <clears throat> the lukewarm water, though, was good for nothing. In fact, it was nauseating. And that, <clears throat> that was Christ's assessment of the church. They sickened him. So think back a few decades to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said <clears throat> in Matthew 5, <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He goes on and he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel. But understand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, the spiritual condition of the Laodicean church <clears throat> was precisely this. They were neither hot and therapeutic or cold and refreshing, but they were lukewarm and good for nothing. They were neither salty 
preservative in their, uh, as far as the community is concerned, or light-giving to those around. <clears throat> Jesus goes on in verse 17 to describe the spiritual condition of lukewarmness. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The city, as the church there, had prospered in material things which made them very wealthy. Not only were they wealthy, but they were very proud of it. Perhaps they thought that such wealth was their own doing and not something which was entrusted to them by God to be used for his glory, to advance the gospel, to help the poor, the widows, and other things. The phrase, I need nothing, indicates that they thought of their wealth, and perhaps health along with it, with the high self, as security for themselves. They found their fulfillment and satisfaction in life in their wealth. They were content. Self-sufficiency is the word which comes to mind. They had everything they needed and really need, did not need the Lord. At least they thought so, anyway. <clears throat> so how would you define what the sin of self-sufficiency is. I've, I've seen it described this way. It is prideful independence. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we who succumb to this sin believe we can live autonomous, independent lives apart from the one who created us. We believe we are self-sufficient. Isn't this quote from Martin Lloyd Jones? I think it's in the, it should be coming up, I believe. Or at least it's in the, I think it's in the handout. <clears throat> he says, anyone who reads the New Testament objectively can see clearly that the Pharisees of our Lord's time were greater sinners, if you could use such terms, than were the publicans and open sinners. Why? Because they were self-satisfied. Because they were self-sufficient. The height of sin is not, to feel any, <clears throat> is not to feel any need of the grace of God. There's no greater sin than that. Infinitely worse than committing some sin of the flesh is to feel that you are independent of God or that Christ never need to have died on the cross of Calvary. There's no greater sin than that. That final self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction and self-righteousness is the sin of sin. Is it sin at its height? Because it is spiritual sin. Again, that's Martin Lord Jones. Hearing that, you could now understand why Jesus, the one who died on the cross so that sinful man can once again enjoy fellowship with God, would find the spiritual condition of these Laodicean churches so disgusting. 
and would be so nauseated by it that he would want to spit them out of his mouth. Hence, this harsh and severe rebuke of them. In that spiritual condition of self-sufficiency, they think everything is fine. In fact, they think spiritually they're fine. They may even read the Bible, sing a few songs about Christ, and pray, and even ask to be blessed even more with material things. But they're self-deceived. In terms of their actual spiritual condition, they don't realize that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and they're good for nothing, as Jesus said about them. Unfortunately, <clears throat> many Bible scholars and theologians think that this is the condition of many of our churches in the U.S. as well as many other developed countries around the world. But you know, churches are made up of individuals and families who could very easily drift away from God and fall into this sin. <clears throat> you know, Midland and the Permian Basin, we don't have black wool to export. but it has something even more precious to us. We got the black oil, right? The black gold, right? Not, not, which is oil. Can some of our churches here drift into this sin? That is something to ponder, isn't it? And to guard against as well, right? <clears throat> One might ask, <clears throat> how do they or any church, get to this extreme spiritual condition of self-sufficiency? There are likely many and varied reasons. There is the obvious enticement and attraction which the world offers, and the constant gravitational pull of the world and Christians to love the world and the things in it. When you couple that with one's own inner lusts and desires, that creates a spiritual pretty strong pull to love the things in the world. But I would venture to say that a key reason why a church would drift so far away from Christ and find itself in such extreme spiritual condition of self-sufficiency is minimization or compromise or distortion of the gospel from the pulpits of our churches. The gospel is, the cent is central in the Christian life and the church growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and being transformed into his likeness. If it is minimized, watered down, put off to the side, distorted, to cater to the itching ears of people, the end result is that people seek to find their sufficiency in many things other than Christ himself. kind of sense which the Lord <clears throat> would want us to know about and experience. It is to find our satisfaction, joy, contentment in him and him alone. Right? Donald Whitney, is author of several very good Christian books, says this. 
the essence of contentment is being satisfied with the incomparable and limitless treasures found in Jesus Christ. Contentment is your soul saying, I have Jesus, and Jesus is enough. <clears throat> so, what if you don't have food and covering? <clears throat> These are some questions to ponder. <laughs> what if you don't have food and covering? How content would you be? And what about finding yourself in dire circumstances like being persecuted or thrown in prison or abandoned by other friends, by your friends? How content would you be then? On the flip side, what if you come into an abundance of money or things, for instance? Would you be content and not be tempted by pride and arrogance, lust for more money and things? self-confidence, trusting in it for your financial security? Well, that is the kind of contentment, finding Christ to be enough, that Paul addresses in Philippians 4, <clears throat> 10 through 13. So let's read that. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have received your concern for me. You are in for me, but you had no opportunity. Speaking of being in need, for I have learned in, many in whatever situation I am content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The word that Paul uses here in the Philippians 4.11 is the word that means to be sufficient, self-sufficient, but in a good sense. It literally means or speaks of fortitude, having inner strength that enables a person to meet danger or bear pain or adversity with courage. Paul uses this word to speak of a divinely bestowed sufficiency. Not something of himself, <clears throat> but an inner strength that comes from God, which enables him to bear up under any circumstance which he finds himself in. Such contentment then speaks of being self-sufficient in Christ, right? not in oneself. It is God's grace enabling him to endure in whatever circumstances he finds himself. <clears throat> well, let's go to point number three, Jesus' exhortation <clears throat> to the Laodiceans. Notice that um, <clears throat> Jesus does not condemn the church, even in its dire spiritual condition. He loves the church, whom he bought with his own blood. And he wants them once again gospel and of the calling to which they have been called. He wants them to know and experience true satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment, and joy in him. He wants them to once again find him to be sufficient. So he says in verse 18, I counsel you 
to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your uh, nakedness may, be, may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Gold refined by fire. He's not talking about the earthly kind <laughs> of gold, which is just, it's really temporary, temporal wealth which passes away. <clears throat> you know, these guys likely had the wealth to purchase the highest quality gold or other precious metals available at the time for their investment portfolio. Gold, free of all impurities. That's the highest value, right? <laughs> but that is not the refined gold which Jesus has in mind here. Peter tells us about this refined gold, which, Je <clears throat> which Jesus is talking about in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. He says, blessed be the God and Father for our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So, the, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, than perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, that is the goal which Jesus has in mind here. A faith, a faith which has been tested by the refiner's fire and found to be genuine. That is true riches. That is true wealth. Such faith is so much more precious than refined gold, which ultimately perishes, doesn't it? White garments. These are not the black wool garments which they so happily and joyously wear and trade to enrich themselves with earthly wealth. But white garments, which speaks of being in right standing with God through faith and living it out daily by faith, and that would cover their nakedness. He counseled them to get salve for their eyes so that they could see. See, Laodicea was well known throughout the region for its production of eye salve, that was used to treat a number of eye diseases. <clears throat> but this was of no help in curing their spiritual blindness. Jesus offers salve that would remove the scales from their eyes so that they could see their own spiritual blindness. But even more importantly, really, they would see the Lord high and lifted up on his throne as depicted in Revelation 4 and 5, which we covered the last couple of weeks. And in doing so, they would see themselves in their true light.
Well, this brings us to verse, <clears throat> verses 19 through 20. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. <clears throat> so be, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Some would argue that the Laodicean church was filled with unbelievers who need to be saved. It seems to be inferred from verse 20, perhaps, where Jesus is pictured standing at the door outside the, you know, outside the door of one's heart, knocking and saying, you know, let me in. <clears throat> to be sure, there are unbelievers in every church, and this one would be no exception. However, what the Lord says here in verse 19 is very telling regarding the people who he's addressing. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This should remind us of the passage in Hebrews 12, <clears throat> 5 through 8, where he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary upon reproof by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, the purpose of this discipline is to turn the hearts of those who had essentially abandoned him, turned away from him, back towards him so that they could enjoy fellowship with him, and will, which will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in their lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this letter to the Laodicean church, Jesus essentially lays out really a biblical process for exercising discipline in the church and at home. Certain kinds of discipline, anyway. Um, Paul lays out a similar pattern for discipline in 2 Timothy 3.16, <clears throat> where he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The teaching he's talking about here is sound doctrine. It's the body of truth which is taught. In his rebuke of the church here at Laodicea, what does Jesus do? He identifies himself in verse 13, uh, 14, uses various names. He says the amen, the faithful and true witness is the beginning of God's creation, which speaks to him being the sovereign Lord and ruler over all things. See, they, these guys needed to know that, didn't they? They needed to be reminded and their eyes opened. <clears throat> reproof, or another word for reproof is rebuke. It speaks of revealing truth that brings conviction of being in error or conviction of sin. In other words, reproof exposes areas in our beliefs, our character, our behavior that do not line up with the truth of God's word. 
But it does not just expose error. It also brings conviction, deep conviction of being in error and the need to make things right. In the case of the Laodicean church, Jesus exposes their sin of self-sufficiency. But with a goal of deep conviction of sin on their part by the Holy Spirit so that they return to him. Correction speaks of changing then false beliefs, wrong attitudes, behavior. Um, <clears throat> once they have been exposed by the truth of God's word and conviction has set in. It literally speaks of a restoration to an upright or right state where things now line up with God's word. For the Laodicean church, this is seen in, in his exhortation and counsel to what? To buy from him gold refined by fire so that they may be rich and white garments so that they may, be clothed, they may clothe themselves and the shame of their nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint their eyes so that they see. <clears throat> the picture of Jesus standing at the door outside the church and knocking is really a depiction of the spiritual condition of the church in its self-sufficiency. In their minds, they are self-satisfied and they have no need for Christ. They are inside socializing with one another in the name of fellowship, probably talking about the latest trades, deals they made and the additional wealth which will result, those kind of things, you know. With Jesus completely out of the picture, he's not invited, he's not needed because they see no need for him. Hence, Christ is on the outside. There's no fellowship with him happening. But he loves them, and his desire to, is to have sweet fellowship with them for their own good. So he's depicted as knocking on the door. So what is this knocking? on the door. See, the knocking on the door is the reproof, it's the discipline which he brings so that they would repent. It speaks of their eyes <clears throat> and ears being opened, them seeing him for who he truly is, and fully turning to him with a heart of worship and adoration. That's the knocking that he's doing. He's been doing in this passage, isn't it? Perhaps he's even knocking on our doors as well in that manner. <clears throat> See, this can only take place, though, through the work of the Spirit in our lives. He's the one who opens blind eyes and deaf ears so that they, that they could truly see the exalted Christ and hear his voice and in turn see themselves in their true light and their, their, their dire need for him. So at the end he says, you as an ear, who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, so these guys, I don't know, they were deaf, they weren't paying any, you know, their eyes had to be open. That's why they needed to solve. Their ears had to be open. Number four, <clears throat> the promise. So Jesus says in verse 21, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will, great, <clears throat> I will grant 
him to sit with me on my throne. So I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. The promise here is not earthly blessings, but heavenly blessings. <clears throat> First, it's restored fellowship with him. Abiding, him abiding in them, them abiding with him. But second, the promise is them overcoming as they walk in fellowship with him. There's really no overcoming aside from fellowship with him. When Jesus tells them to purchase from him gold as refined by fire, he's essentially saying to them that tough times are ahead, which, we, which they will have to walk through and overcome. It could be persecution or other types, kinds of suffering, but it's meant to refine their faith. But they will be able to endure and overcome. How? Because of fellowship with him. He will be with them through all of that. He will be with them, encouraging them, strengthening them by his grace, and keeping them for the inheritance which is reserved in heaven for them, according to Peter. I think a good way uh, to close this morning <clears throat> is to read a passage from Isaiah 55. Eric, I don't know if you have a, a closing song. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read this as, as Eric comes. <clears throat> I think it's appropriate to close with this passage. Mainly, you know, the passage mainly carries a salvation message. But I think it does apply very well to those who are enveloped in this sin of self-sufficiency. I think they need the same thing. So listen to what it says. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. <clears throat> it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. But he goes on, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that you, your soul may live. <clears throat> And it will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love <clears throat> for David. You know, if this passage speaks to you personally, whether Christian or not, <clears throat> or the teaching in general this morning, we would certainly invite you to come up after the service and speak to one of our leaders about Christ. We invite rest and contentment for your soul and hope for the future. You could, you could certainly also be a neighbor and speak with that person as well too. So let's close with this uh, closing song.